Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. Our guest today is Kevin Espiritu. Kevin is the founder and CEO of the world's most followed gardening brand and online garden store, Epic Gardening. Matt and I have been following Epic and Kevin's journey for a while, but when we met him in person at Capital Camp in May, we knew we had to get him on the show. Since going full-time on Epic Gardening in 2013, Kevin has cracked all forms of media. The business has 3.6 million followers across social and YouTube, over 20 million podcast downloads, and some 50 million blog visits. He is the trusted voice for gardeners all across the US, And while we could happily talk to Kevin all day about each of those properties, we wanted to go deep with him on something else. His acquisition of Botanical Interests, a 28-year-old business that sells seed and garden products. As you'll hear, Epic's transition from content to commerce has been incredibly successful. And today, it makes far more money from selling product than it generates from making content. We asked Kevin about raising money from the churning group to make the acquisition, the process itself, and what second-order effects it's had on Epic as a business. I really hope you enjoy learning from Kevin as much as we do. All right, Kevin, we're going to spend most of this discussion talking about the acquisition of botanical interests. So many creators, including ourselves, think about the idea of shifting into commerce, but rarely do you see a creator acquiring a mature business like you did. I do want to start at the top and talk about gardening, your craft, what you have owned in terms of the content corner for many years now. And I read that you started trying to grow hydroponic cucumbers back in 2013. And that was your gateway into all of this. But I think right now, a lot of us focus on what are you obsessed with? What is some passion that you have that you would do for free? Was that your relationship to the craft? Can you just talk a little bit about your relationship with gardening and how that's evolved over time as you've had much more success monetarily with it? Yeah, sure. So I think at the start, it was an escape for me because I was really addicted to video games. I had come out of playing online poker for college and I was literally the trope of just in a garage post-college playing computer games and sort of wasting time, in my opinion, because at least when I played poker, I made money for playing a computer game. And so gardening was an escape at the start. And then I got really, I wouldn't necessarily say addicted, but more like fascinated by it. The fact that you could control and shape the growth of a living organism and the things you did impacted it. And then you could get something out of it. In that case, cucumbers, so disgusting that my brother, I asked him about it recently. I was like, do you remember that story? Cause he's like, I don't really remember that. And then I talked with the cucumbers. He's like, oh, I remember that because they were so disgusting. He said he almost threw up when he ate them. So yeah, I wouldn't say I became captivated by it immediately, but these days, 
I think there's a David Semmer quote, or maybe it's a quote of a quote that he shared where he was saying, you know, what could you not be paid a billion dollars to quit? And for me, it's like, there's no money I could probably be offered to never have some level of garden or cultivated space or some landscape project I'm working on. Because even today, I walked out, I did a 45 minute walk this morning in the sun, came back to the garden. I was like, dude, this is just so awesome. I just love it. And if I, what would I do with the money? And I'd probably want to spend it on that. And if I can't, then that's, what's the point? Awesome position to be in. You mentioned poker and a story came up that I wanted to ask you about, and I was going to ask later, but the time is right now, of you VPNing into French websites to play poker against them because you realized that there was a bit of an arbitrage where they were just worse at poker. So rather than play in your home turf, you went abroad, which I just thought was an awesome look into your psyche and how you think about just everything in life. Can you just walk me through that process and how you're thinking about opportunity cost of your time and investment returns? Sure. To be really clear, poker, you can be really good at poker, which I would say I was certainly above average, but I was not stellar. I know a lot of friends who were absolutely stellar and I was nowhere near their level. So the other option when you play poker is to just simply play with terrible people. So if you're average and they're terrible, you're actually really good. And so most of poker during that time, as the game became more efficient, so more people understood the theory of the game and how to play it, the fish money or the dumb money got sucked out of the system and accrued to the better players. And so as that happens, it's more valuable to simply just choose the right games to be in. And so what you would do is you'd sit there and wait and try to play these really terrible players. And I had a list of all these guys. There was one guy we had all figured out. He was basically some oil mogul in Texas and he just did not care. He simply didn't care. He would just lose buy-in after buy-in at $600 a pop. So it was just a feeding frenzy. And so when I realized that, I was like, well, poker's getting popular in America. It became popular here. It spread to other countries, but the game is less sophisticated there. So it's almost like going back in a time machine. So if you VPN into those sites, because you couldn't play unless you were French, you're just playing against these French people that just have no clue what they're doing relative to America. So it was a really fun time. And it's very swingy when you play that way, though, because the worse a player is, unless they're bad in a very specific way, generally speaking, the worse a player is, the more variance there is. So they can absolutely dominate you and you'll just get furious or you'll just crush them. But when you play against a predictably average player, you can grind them away in a very stable way. It was just a really interesting time in life, for sure. I'm glad that you brought up that concept. That's actually something, I don't know if there's a psychological term for that, but the idea of someone being so bad at something that you can't predict what move they're going to make or they go completely out of sequence. So it's actually harder to play against them. It's something you actually see in sports sometimes too. Fascinating backstory. You clearly have a business mind and took what was this hobby that you were leaning into and built this media entity around it. You started to get into commerce, I know, through selling product, but then you make this big acquisition. So rewind in terms of prior to the acquisition, was this something that you were seeking out? Is it something that you felt like was the next logical step? How hard were you looking to acquire a business? I would say pretty, pretty damn hard, honestly, because the way Epic was prior to the big acquisition, we've done three, two were quite small relative to the seed company, botanical interests. We had the media. We had all the platforms, the blog, the podcast, YouTube, multiple YouTube channels, multiple creators. And so we're like, okay, in our space, we're doing really, really well in media. It's a profitable business for us and we're great. And we had this nascent commerce business. It's weird for me to say nascent from my perspective as a YouTuber, a content creator doing many, many millions in revenues, not very small. 
But from the perspective of the industry or the category, it would be quite small. And so we go, okay, well, we've proven that our audience enjoys what we create and trusts our recommendations and we recommend good stuff and sell to them. What if we were able to speed that up? And there's certain businesses that you could build them, but it would be very difficult. It'd be a total slog. And seeds is definitely one because it's a very resource intensive or experience intensive business. You have to source and or contract grow out actual plants, harvest them for their seed, germinate them out, test them, test them for organic or GMO properties, germinate, test them, all this different stuff, pack them in packs, design the packs, somehow get that out to wholesale. Well, it can be built because there are businesses there, but it's a five to 10 year slog just to get that up and running. And there's a fantastic brand in the space that was actually the first pack I ever grew that we found out the founders were looking to sell. And so we had looked at dozens, more than dozens of businesses at that point in time. We're like, okay, this one seems really promising. And was it seed specifically, or were you just looking for interesting businesses that you could acquire at a certain price? Yeah, I think it's an interesting time. I think right now, especially in 2023, where a lot of businesses are becoming a bit distressed and you go, well, this one's been losing money for a couple of years. Does it make sense to try to save it or something? So we were looking at a bunch of different ones in the gardening world. So checked out an online tree nursery out of Missouri, almost did that one. But when it came to the seed business, there were multiple seed companies we looked at. But first of all, I love Botanical Interest, the brand, just I've always loved it for the last 10 years. But number two, there's this idea of return on hassle, which I think everyone's familiar with these days. But why go for the one doing 500,000 in revenue when it's nearly as hard to scale up that as to actually just operate the one doing much more than that? If you can buy it, which is obviously that's the question. You have the amount of money to buy it. But yeah, seeds was great because there's very few things in the gardening world you actually need to purchase year after year and want to purchase year after year. Gardening, you could really do for almost free. And we talk about that a lot in our content. So the other stuff you have to buy year after year, it's really difficult to sell. Soil, fertilizers, it's heavy stuff. It's not super expensive. So you can't really justify shipping it. But seeds are very lightweight and it's fun to try out new varieties every year. And so you get a true SaaS seeds as a service, as a business, because there's great margin on it and it's good to go. When you were looking at seeds and Dom referenced this, but you were already selling raised beds, which I would not describe as easy to ship. The logistics are probably much more challenging and seeds are somewhat the opposite. Was there a wide swath of other products that would have fit into that same category? I'm just wondering. How big of a top of funnel did you have when you were ideating about potential acquisitions? It was pretty big. It would be any tool that you could feasibly want to offer. It all starts from, do we love it or not? Because if we don't love it, we can't create content about it authentically and thus people will not purchase it. So I would say the funnel was gated by the tastes of the actual gardeners in the company. But yeah, we looked at a small tool company and scaling that up by developing more tools. We looked at shipping houseplants or live goods, so trees and stuff like that, soil companies, fertilizer companies, all sorts of different things. But to us, the seed company solved four or five different things at the exact same time, and it just completely fit. And who were you working with when you were looking for these opportunities? How did you learn about botanical interest being for sale? Was it just emailing them, asking them if they would be for sale, or were you working with someone else to go through this process? Yeah, so the smaller deals that we did I sourced those ones, which we haven't talked about yet. It's a seed tray company as well as a blog. 
But the larger deals, since I took on a Series A round of investment, we have investors that help with this sort of thing, and they're quite good at exactly this. So a lot of the diligence, that's just not my area of expertise. I could see the brand logic for doing that deal. I could see the business strategy logic for doing the deal, but I can't spend all my time figuring out what's for sale and what's not, and or actually diving into the deep diligence of the business. So that's where we had a lot, of, a lot, a lot of help from our investors. And then converting the deal was a mix of both of us. And in terms of raising that capital, was an idea that use of proceeds would go towards an acquisition? Was that always part of the business strategy and why they were investing? Yeah, I think so. Because the typical creator business model is sort of inverted where you find an audience first and serve the media and then you put a business behind it. And I had proven out I could put a business behind it. But like I said, it, was, it wasn't super scaled up, wasn't super professional relative to how good the media was. And so the logic was always, we're going to hire some team because when I took investment, I had three, four contractors and that was it. So they were like, you're a little bit understaffed. I'm like, trust me, I know. And so part of it was just operationalizing the business. The other part was, we're going to look for a great company that wants to sell to bring into the fold and try to bring to the next generation of growers. And you mentioned you did two acquisitions previously without this investor helping you out, without investor being involved in the diligence. Was there that substantial of a difference in terms of the process and how the acquisition actually went about? These things are not easy to actually get done until the signatures are there. Can you talk a little bit about that? And maybe just think about it for the framing of if a creator were thinking about doing this, but they don't have the investor behind them. Is that something that you would still recommend? Or I would say, so I'll talk about them really briefly. The first one, all of these were done in the context of post taking on investment in general. So I did have some level of support on, we had a board vote. Should we do this? Should we not do this? That kind of thing. The deals were small enough such that the diligence was really not super necessary. I talked with our friend Eric Jorgensen about it, where because I'm not a financial guru, I just try to find seven ways it could work. And I go, okay, well, if it could work seven ways at this price point, it feels like I should just go ahead and do it. And then there's the strategic thinking. So when we bought the seed tray company, that was a product that I had drop shipped to my audience. I was the first person to really introduce it to the gardening community. And I just love the trays. And so he would take care of the fulfillment and I went ahead and showed how to use them and promoted them and talked about how great they were. And everyone just loved them. And so they started ramping really fast and we became almost all of his revenue. You know, I went to my friend Diego, who's the creator, and I said, look, man, I think we should just do this together. Can we acquire the assets? Because it doesn't make sense to buy it on revenue. I am the revenue. So what if I grabbed the assets, paid some premium? And what if you work with us full time as our product lead? And we've expanded that line quite a bit. And I think we've already paid the investment off. I'd have to check, but I'm pretty sure and it's been less than a year. So that one was just another one where it was like, look, I'm selling raised beds. You need to start seeds in something to put them in the raised beds. And this is just functionally a better product. So let's go ahead and do it. And I will say it's your point, Matt, there is some friction in these deals where a lot of boxes must be checked, where as the founder, I go, yeah, this is just obvious. We don't need to underwrite it that hard. We don't need to do it. But of course, you still do. And then with botanical interests, in terms of the process, are you closed at the beginning of this year? When were those conversations starting and how long did it take? And just any things when you reflect on the deal, what stands out in your memory? 
Sure. Yeah. The deal closed sometime in November of last year. We announced it early this year and we had probably been talking to the founders since May of 2022. So it was about a six month process from start to finish. From time we got the initial true offer, maybe it was about two months or so, but there was a lot to go through. I mean, it's a mature 20 plus year old business with significant warehouse space, with significant customer roster. There's wholesale, there's online, the wholesale split into different types of revenue. And so the team really went deep into that and tried to underwrite, okay, well, how does cash flow come in? How does it leave the business? All that kind of stuff to figure out what would be potentially wrong. And then you have to look and say, okay, well, it's a wholesale and online business. Do we think we can grow these? And at what rates can we grow each relative to each other? Obviously, Epic's really strong at online. So we were very bullish on what we could do with the online. But with the wholesale, we're like, well, they're in a thousands and thousands of stores. How much can that really grow? Well, maybe we can get some new stuff into those stores, not just seeds. So maybe that's the real opportunity there. Yeah, it was a lot. To be totally clear, I did not do a lot of the hardcore diligence because I probably would have been a liability, not an asset there. But meeting the founders, meeting the team, understanding the business and trying to go business person to business person like, hey, look, we're not some big conglomerate that's just going to suck the value out of the business. We actually like this company and we love the product and we're going to try to take it to more people, I think is what really helped them go with us. Yeah. Well, on that point, A, you have to underwrite it, make sure it's the right investment for you. But B, you're not doing this by yourself. Any good asset generally comes with other people trying to buy the same thing. Was there much of that? Did you have a line of sight into how much of it there was and if there anything you could do to swing it your way? Yeah, I think, I don't know exactly how many folks were in the running at the time. I want to say it was under 10, but over five, somewhere in that range. And we were really trying to figure out who it was because you're in the category, you know, all the players and you're like, okay, well, it's probably this one public company. It's probably this strategic acquirer. It's definitely not another YouTuber. I'm definitely the odd man out here. So yeah, we tried to suss it out. We really couldn't figure out exactly who the players were, but I was like, look, what is the strength? You always have to go to, what can you do that no one else can do? And I'm like, I can put this in front of people in a way that none of the other businesses can. And so what I did is I met the founders who turns out one of their friends was a fan of Epic. And so Curtis, they're a couple. So Curtis and Judy, Curtis was like taking photos. He's like, oh, like I want to send it to my friends. I'm like, I feel like I might have an edge here. And they gave us some swag and I decided I really want to steward this business in the future. I want to be the winner of this bid. So I'll wear the hat 24 seven until they say yes or they say no. So if you look at the content that we put out during that time, in that six months of the tail end of 2022, very few pieces of content am I not wearing the botanical interest hat. I just spammed it everywhere. And I think it made a difference. Who knows if it was the final thing that swayed it over. What I will say is that I'm pretty sure to the founder's credit, they chose us at the detriment of their own pocketbook to some degree. We know we weren't the highest bid, but we were, in their opinion, the best bid. And maybe representing the brand and putting it out there and showing the true love for it helped. I'm not sure. Hopefully so. Yeah, I guess it's all qualitative. You'll never really know. It sounds like in the end, some of the things that you could do were presented in a way which convinced them and you won the deal. So there's that evidence you have going for you. I'm just curious if you reflect on the early part of that process. And if you were to think about it in reference to any other process that might be going on, do you think a content creator, a YouTuber, while we know how big the ecosystem is, I think in the traditional finance world with all the intermediaries involved, they might not view it as as strong of a bid. 
Do you think that came into play at all? Did you feel at a disadvantage at any point going into this? I would say if I was a bootstrapped founder still and trying to wrangle financing, if you buy a house and you're all cash versus, I think that would have really hurt me, especially if I was coming in under plus all of that. The fact that we have the churning group as our investors, that carries a lot of weight that I hadn't really considered prior to raising any capital. And so there's this implicit guarantee that the funding's there if you want to do it. So I think that helped quite a bit. I think given that you have that, if you're a creator and you actually know you have the financial backing to make a play, I actually think you're in a stronger position because you can, creators are in that business because they love the thing they do. And if you're a founder selling a business, you clearly want it to go to a good home, not be sucked up by some soulless corp. And so I think if that's the case, you do have a pretty good advantage. Yeah, that makes sense. And I am curious on the thesis that you could take an existing wholesale business and maybe not add to that specific business, but bring more into many of those stores. That is, we use it and make fun of the term synergy, but that is the definition of synergy and actually has a lot of value besides the cliche stuff. Have you seen any early success with that? So what we've seen is we have a new line of seed going into some of the rural Petco stores. So that's linear expansion of the seed line, but in a category that perhaps the business as run prior wouldn't have discovered because what we can do is we did a collab with Petco where I improved my pond in my backyard and you get this media piece and then you can promote. Think about it. If a new wholesale account with a bigger company, it's like 25 nurseries or something wants to pick us up. And let's just say my new product, the seed trays is a clone of someone else's product or they've cloned us vice versa. Either way, the products commoditized fully well, you're still going to go with us because I can say, hey, go grab our trays at blank blank nursery in these 25 locations on every YouTube video if I want to. So I just put feet in your door, whereas the other person can't, even if we're dealing with the exact same product. So if I have a better product and I can put eyeballs on so that human beings walk into your store, why would you not choose us? And so that's where I think the real unlock is. We've seen some early success with getting some beds and seed trays into some test nurseries, but we'll see that's really coming up. The buying season is in the next couple of months. So we'll have to see if nurseries want to go with us, but hopefully they do. Because to be honest, they're already sharing our content without even asking us in their own newsletters because they're not making content. And so our stuff will get forwarded through back to me on my tips on growing tomatoes from some random nursery in New Jersey. I'm like, okay, cool. Well, we also have this suite of products for you. So I'm really hoping that that works out. Just going back into this journey of going from content to commerce, it's like a at this point, it seems like a fairly well-trodden path from a number of different people. But I guess the one missing ingredient is knowing when you should be making that jump. In your experience, was there a time where you're like, okay, I think I've done maxed out where I am with the media business, not necessarily in terms of growth, but I feel comfortable with the machine now. And I really want to turn this into something slightly different. And I feel ready now, or it's just, you never feel ready until you've done it. And then you're like, okay, we just, we muddled through. Yeah, I think for me, I started product in 2019. And at that point, I had had a blog going for a few years that was generating some revenue. And the only way to improve it would be to linearly scale the traffic such that the ads or the affiliate income would go up with it. Similar to YouTube, it'd be more content and or more brand deals or something, which I never did much of. And besides that, I was like, well, I'm on all the social as well. So if I was to scale this up, there is no exponential move from here. 
And this is all dependent on traffic being good or a brand saying yes or no. And so I was like, I'm at a point where if one of these pillars falls, I will be in a bad spot. Not bad relative to a global scale of well-being. I'm just doing completely fine. But just the, the business itself was, hmm, this feels somewhat precarious, I guess. And so that's when I got into the product. And I was like, well, these brands are paying when I did a deal, at least, w- would pay you to access your audience. That's what they want to do. And clearly, they are making more if you do a good job than they paid you. So if I'm my own brand, then I would make that amount and not the amount I just got paid. Very basic logic. So I also, at that time, we were doing pretty well on just straight up affiliate income to the tune of multiple fifty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 a month, in which when you're solo up, you're just like, wow, I'm killing it. But I was like, well, daddy Jeff Bezos could change his commission at any point in time. Lo and behold, 2020, when COVID happened, he sliced it in half. Imagine I didn't have that product business spinning. I would have lost $40,000 a month. And then imagine if I was scaling my business and paying a team such that I actually can't afford to lose the 40, I would have been totally screwed. So I think it was the realization that the only way to grow from the point I was in 2019 was to just do more of the same and or offer something. I was like, okay, I guess I have to do this. And yeah, it was certainly, I was a total clown on how I did it, but at least it got done and set me up for the future. Similar question in terms of taking on investment. I have a feeling that it was not the first time you got offered to take investment. What made it the right time and what made them the right party if they were the right party? Just some of the dynamics there. Yeah. So that was a very trying time for me mentally, I would say psychologically, because The weird part about people who want to create for a living is that's pretty much all they want to do. And you actually don't want anyone to tell you what to do, because if you did, you would just definitely not be doing what you're doing. I wanted to make videos in my backyard about the thing I love to do, see that people enjoyed it, feel good about that, and make a good living doing it. And so when investors come around, I don't know how they know, but at some point, if you get enough prominence, these investors are like, oh, we should email this guy. And yeah, I think I probably deleted 20, 30 of those types of emails. Something about the churning group just hit a little bit different. They were quite persistent at the start. I chatted with some of their portfolio founders, like Steve Ranella of The Meat Eater, who's a great guy, gave me a couple hours of his time on a family vacation talking to me about how it was working with them. I was very suspicious, very skeptical, almost paranoid level of what are they trying to do? They're doing this, they're doing that. But I think the realization I had when it came down to it was I'm already top in the field, at least for the world I was in at that time. I'm well past my skis on operations because I think we had sales tax nexus in 35, 40 states. I was trying to keep up with that. The bureaucracy of scale started to happen. And on a team of me, an editor, an assistant, a garden assistant, and a writer, that was all we had. And we did something like seven, seven and a half million that year in revenue in 21. I was like trying to go for 1 million. I thought life would be good at that point. And it was, but it's just blew past. And I was like, dude, I actually don't know a lot of the stuff I would have known. Let's say had I, I don't know, went to work in corporate America from age 22 to 26. I'd be like, oh, okay. I see how orgs are structured and I see how management works. And I literally did not know any of that. And so I was like, this This allows me to stay ahead. I get to learn a ton. I have way more optionality and opportunity. And I have a network of people that know how to do this stuff that I simply don't. And so it was the right time. I think 2021 was a very frothy year. 
And so I was like, you know, what if something existential happens in 2022? And I don't know what that would be because I don't know what I don't know. So what if I just get wiped out from something really stupid next year? And I have no idea. This will probably help me avoid that. And this probably won't be on the table next year either. So that's how it all lined up. Funny, because the way you phrase it, I think is very logical, calculated risk and diversification. It could almost sound defense. You're taking a defensive approach to it. Meanwhile, you're growing the business substantially. You're doubling the size of your business when you're making these deals and almost complicating the operational aspect of it too. Yeah, I think I am definitely more of a hedging entrepreneur, I suppose, than a hyper aggro scaler, I would say. I just want to make sure I don't die rather than very, very quickly dominate. And I think that's just like a bootstrap mentality applied to this scale. Like That's why when we purchased the blog, which I haven't talked about yet, at least with you guys, I was like, okay, well, a friend of mine from the world of SEO, which is how I started with the blog, he scaled a blog to the size of Epic in a year. So why don't I just have him run our blog instead? Because he's clearly better than us. So it just was a no brainer. And I guess that's a defensive move that allows us to scale. So yeah, it's just these little weird, weird plays, I guess. How has your mentality changed with regards to your business over the years? Early on, you were the sole creator doing everything. Then you hire someone to write on the blog and then you take investment. You've given away some equity at that point. The business is bigger Then you buy. And then in terms of the mind share of the media business versus the commerce business is maybe slightly different to the revenue percentages if you were to split them out. Are there chapters in that from a mentality standpoint of how you view the business and then how you run it and make decisions with regards to that? Yeah, there definitely are. It's the scale and perspective of, let's say, revenues or costs in the business. Back in the day, I would be like, huh, I can't really buy this new camera or I can't really get another editor or something. But now call the content business maybe one fifteenth-ish of the product business. So you go, okay, well, most people don't even have a profitable media arm to their company if they primarily sell commerce. So you're winning even if it's not a cost center. So if it's a profit center, you're really winning. And then you almost have to ask the question, how much should it be a profit center given that it's a 15th of the actual revenue? Maybe it should just be a break-even media, culture, community, marketing function. So you get into those types of comparisons. It's tricky too, because then you go, well, okay, I know that the products are now for the business and now there's this wholesale angle to the products. So do I have to change the content to make more people buy the products? But if you go too hard that route, then the magic of the content goes away. And so you can't, I'm of the belief personally that you can't and shouldn't try to hyper attribute content to commerce sales on a pure one-to-one basis. I think make the best content humanly possible for your audience and don't not sell anything, but don't oversell it. Don't run it like QVC and let the chips fall where they may. Because a lot of the anecdotal stories you'll hear from your audience is, hey, you know, I'm a long road trucker that listens to your podcast. And I talk about it on the CB radio with 20 other truckers. And I'm like, dude, you can't attribute that. You can't quantify that. And who knows what those 20 people then do when they get home? Do they then go buy a raised bed and start gardening? And then their neighbor comes over and says, hey, what's this, Chad? That's where I like to play. And I leave it to other people on our team to try to figure out how to make sense of that. But to me, that's where the magic of the content is. You had an excellent conversation with Jorgensen and Capital Camp, and I think you guys have talked about this multiple times. 
it is really fascinating to think about most companies spending, let's say, 5% to 15% of revenues on marketing expense. And if you don't necessarily have to spend that, or even if it's a negative percentage of revenues because it's a profitable marketing business, it truly flips the entire model. So it's crazy to think about what that could mean in the future. But it requires the balance, as you referenced. Do you have any rules of thumb for thinking about your media so that it doesn't feel like QVC? Is there any type of heuristic you use or framework that you use such that it's not constantly pushing? Because it it's tough and it's qualitative in many ways. Well, it's tough. And then as the team grows too, you get pressure from every department wants to fight for itself in a company. Our customer experience department, I even told our leader there, I was like, look, your job is to fight for the customer almost to an unreasonable standard. And then commerce or ops or finance will be like, oh, come on, Chris, chill out. That's too far. And so commerce will say like, hey, you know, this new product's coming out. We need this, 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 this. I'll be like, cool. I hear that. I'll do it this way. And you're just going to have to accept that, I guess. So I think what we try to do, and I tell we have new creators coming on all the time because I'm trying to make myself not be the single point of failure for this thing. And so I tell them, I'm like, look, don't drip sell product 24-7 in a subtle way in everything you do. Provide as much value to the audience as possible. Let's say if it's tomato season, how to grow tomatoes, all these different techniques and trellises and whatever. And if we happen to have a tomato product that drops during that time, go crazy promoting it for a shorter period of time. It's the whole Gary V jab, 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 right hook. If you guys are familiar with that whole ethos, it's that. It's you basically barely ever ask for anything. You always have karmic equity on your side of the equation. And then every so often you're like, okay, I'll ask for something. We try to do it that way. And so we did this big Memorial Day sale, which is for gardeners. It's our Christmas because in the true Christmas season, it's very cold. And so we recorded audio bumpers for our podcast that were all sale related. We did these interstitial ads in our YouTube videos for everything that went out for those two weeks that we then clipped out of the video after the sale was over. But it was these full on sketches of me and my gardener, Jacques, bantering with each other. Like this sale's crazy, like stupid stuff, but it really worked. You know, an ad works when people are like, either I couldn't tell it was an ad or it's the best ad I've ever seen. I love it. And so, yeah, I like to go really hard when there is something to promote. Otherwise, I pretty much run it as if it is a media business. What have you learned about cultivating creators? The prime job, once you get to some level of success, is extricating yourself and, as you say, not being the point of failure, but bringing on people that can do an authentic job that your audience resonates with, that they get good information from, is also not straightforward. What advice would you give to other people about bringing new people on or buying people, as you said, that have done a great job and you'll be great within my business. Yeah, dude, this is very difficult. I would say we haven't really come anywhere near mastering this. We've had some some missteps, mostly faults of our own or just misaligned incentives and poor communication. So let's take the blog. Jason, who is our head of search, is fantastic at SEO, fantastic publisher. He's not a video first creator though. And so his identity is not as tied into the creation as let's say a YouTuber would be. And I can speak very clearly about that because I'm also a YouTuber and I feel this level of affinity for that content in a way that a blogger may not. So in that case, it was a bit more straightforward. It was, hey, look, join the best gardening company out there with the thing that you created that's awesome and life's just going to be better and we acquire it. So you get to pay off your house or whatever you want to use for those funds. That was straightforward because that was more of a full acquisition. 
when you're working with creators in a collaboratory sense, I have yet to crack this completely. We have Jacques, who initially literally started out as my gardener. He just helped gardening around the house and he showed up in content and I slowly introduced him to the audience and people were like, wow, I really like this guy. He seems like really fun, really genuine. And I could not have guessed he would be as good at creating as he is. I think a lot of it for him, he lives literally a stone's throw away from my house. So he's very close in proximity to me. So I can just osmosis him everything 24-7 when we hang out. And what better way to learn than that? What I've found is with other creators who aren't local, which we are going to really need because we need to speak to gardening across climate and region, it's much more difficult to get them to see what we're trying to do and buy into it. And also to get their content to a level at which it's performing a lot better the coaching level of it. It's a lot harder. So I actually don't have a great answer there. We're testing out the escalation right now where standard company has an affiliate program. So do we, but our affiliates also primarily they're creators. They're smaller scale gardening creators or homesteading creators. And we'll say, oh, interesting. This woman over here, who's a homesteader, she's really performed well, her content as well. And we can see that she's referring sales to us. That's a really clear sign that she has affinity. And maybe there's something we could do with her. Maybe we'll start putting her in a YouTube video or two, and then we'll perhaps design a channel for her. I'm not really sure yet, but that's the approach we're taking now. Yeah, we can talk to you. What you described with Jacques is basically the Pittman plan, which we use at Colossus in terms of the steady drip of people into the content. And then the audience builds this affiliation with them. But it is tricky, and it's incredibly difficult to do, especially when there's various mediums. You now have this enterprise, this organization. There's so many different pieces to it. And throughout this conversation, which you do all the time, you credit other people a lot. And you're very humble in terms of being willing to acknowledge this person did this, this person did this, this team did this. How hands-on are you in terms of some of these organizations that sit the operational side of seed growing is very intense? How hands-on are you with that piece of the business? One quick note on the creator thing before I get into that answer, Matt. Something I think is really cool is if you think about what Marvel did really well, the MCU. And so you go, okay, well, you can team up with the Avengers, but you can also go watch a Thor movie and or three Thor movies. And maybe even there's the chance that a Thor movie has its own spinoff of a sub-character in Thor. And then you think, okay, well, you know, I know that there's the Avengers headquarters in New York, and I know the building, and I know then where Peter Parker lives in relation to that. I keep telling my team, it's a nested cinematic universe is what we're trying to create. And so let's say my backyard, I have a greenhouse in my backyard. The greenhouse is a character in the show, in the conceptual framework of someone watching the content. They're like, oh, that's the greenhouse. Well, within the greenhouse, there might be a section. There might be the tropical rare plant section. And I might reference that every so often. Not too much because it's not that important. But then you zoom out. Well, then there's the backyard. Well, then there's the whole homestead and what I'm doing with the energy system and stuff. Well, then there's Jacques' house and these other three creators' house and the products that you can then see at the nursery. And so I go, the more you think about it as this tangled web of interconnected concepts, the better off I think the introduction of new creators is with the effect that you mentioned. Because you go, oh, yeah, that's that guy that does this. And then you let like Darwinian selection allow the audience to say, hmm, actually, I really like these chickens, or I really like this one new creator. Okay, cool. Well, you're going to actually become a side character in the universe. And you sort of escalate them in that way. Okay, so to get to the question you actually asked. No, I love all that. I went deep in the rabbit hole on Kevin Feige, who seemed to play a major part in all that. I think I listened to every podcast appearance he's made, trying to piece together what you were describing just there. 
yeah, I think I'm relatively juvenile there. But once I started seeing that, I was like, oh, if it doesn't connect, don't make it. It has to connect somehow. Just on that, I saw you tweeted the other day about you can't systematize content. It just doesn't work. Like you just kill the soul of it. And that's the thing that must be preserved at all costs and tying it back and having these frames of reference. And we've seen in our business, when you try and systematize various bits, with the newsletter we did for a bit, and just the drop-off and click-throughs is just astounding because people just doesn't resonate with them. It doesn't feel like it's coming from a person. And that's ultimately, people just want to have that human connection with someone that they actually like. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think it's like that 38 special song, like hold on loosely, but don't let go. Everything's a paradox, dude. You have to systemize something. You can't not have an intro. and The intro has a certain principle to it. But that particular intro for that particular video sort of somehow has to come from the void and show up some way. And that's, I guess, creativity. But yeah, Matt, to answer your question about involvement and credit and stuff, I think initially the reason that, let's say, Jacques showed up on the channel is because I felt inauthentic if I displayed that I was doing it all myself still in the garden, because that would be the first moment I hired help. And so I was like, well, I'm not just going to pretend this stuff's magically getting done by myself. So I showed Jacques. And that ended up blossoming into this relationship. It's all a team effort. And there's certain things that I don't even, at the scale of 70-ish employees now, there's a lot that I don't even know happens. And it's just a week goes by and I go, oh, you guys were doing that? Awesome. That looks really cool. And so that's just the truth. And I would say it's been a challenge for me as the founder to not want to get involved in every little thing. Because I'm fascinated by every aspect of the business. I could sit there all day and talk about production of seed and germination testing and stuff. but I probably just shouldn't. And that's the thing I have to try to manage in myself. At this point, how was your week split in terms of time? I would say we try to reserve about two-ish days for full content dedication. And so that might be shooting thumbnails or just shooting content itself or scripting or prepping or pre-production, any of the different pieces of that. One day is typically administrative. So it'd be catching up with my direct reports, It'll be our weekly metrics meeting. It'll be any potential hires or team meetings that we have to do. I try to leave the end of the week open for CEO shit, as I would call it. Podcast recordings. Yeah, stuff like this, for example, is a fantastic example, but also just the random things that only the founder can do. If I need to go meet with someone who, if I'm the only one who can move that needle, then literally it's the most valuable thing I could do with my time. So we're hoping to get into different categories in gardening. It would be amazing to, let's say, have a bespoke like container gardening line of vegetables because we have a ton of people who grow in apartments and townhouses in our audience. They're like, cool, I love all the stuff you talk about. I just can't grow it. And I'm like, well, maybe you can soon. And so if I need to go, let's say, have a meeting with someone who grows a ton of plants and might be able to help us do that, then that's probably what I should be doing. So I try to set some time aside for that. And in terms of when you think about the future, I know you have a lot on the plate, but let's just the bigger dreams, all of that. Is there just expansion opportunities in terms of horizontal expansion, maybe vertical expansion? Do you just see yourself continuing to grow this thing as long as you have white space to grow it? I think the broadest vision of it is if you look at what we have learned to do, I think pretty well relative to some other creator businesses, we've learned how to create awesome media, build an audience and a true community versus just like a top line number of engagement. Community, I would define as they're taking action based on what you're doing. So we've learned how to do that and sell products and services to that community that they love. So if you think about that, it's, well, gardening is not necessarily 
the end of that, you could go horizontal into homesteading, baking, cooking, knitting, sewing, carpentry. It's the most macro problem we've tried to crack is just how do you design a better way to offer products and services to people in today's world? That might be the broadest vision of it. There's certainly a lot to go is just, let's just get some new products into the nursery. But I think that's what we're trying to crack is that problem. I like the way you phrase that, the broadest, biggest dream and phrasing it that way. Obviously, yeah, a lot in terms of tactical, maybe a little bit closer incremental stuff that you can tap in. The quote I liked, I think, I forgot who said it, but someone said, businesses die when the founder runs out of vision. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I never thought about it like that. And so it made me go, okay, what's the most insane vision I could think of? Maybe it doesn't express. Maybe there is a time where I just want to do something else, whatever. But I think it's interesting to go to the nth degree and set that as the North Star just so that you don't run out of steam at some point. Yeah. Business won't die if you make the biggest, boldest vision out there. I like that. That's at least hedging. This has been awesome. Honestly, since we first met at Capital Camp, I was expecting to nerd out with you on gardening things. And then immediately we jumped into the business side of things. And I was, wow. And you've had some awesome interviews with some others. Eric Jorgensen, again, I would highly recommend people listen to that. To close this out, you, I think, are very in touch with other creators. You have been for a long period of time. You've been in the community. Who are some people that you think we can learn from, others can learn from in terms of whether it's common names or maybe off the radar names, people that you're picking things up from that you would suggest others check out as well? I study creators like to an insane degree. So a lot of the ones I would recommend, I actually don't even remember their names because it's a YouTube channel with 12,000 subscribers that made one really good video or something like that. So a lot of it is that I'll find these esoteric channels that make weirdly good content about a particular thing. How do you find that? I don't even know. I think the algorithm just knows that's what I want. I'm not really sure. I'm in a Discord server with a bunch of creators as well, along with the head of YouTube's algorithm. So maybe I'll have to ask him about that. But speaking of that, I would say on the media side of things, a guy like Thomas Frank is really interesting to learn from because he had a huge YouTube channel. He didn't give it up, but he just put it on a hiatus, built a smaller YouTube channel that actually monetizes at a much higher multiple. And he also, I don't know exactly the situation, but he owns a piece of Nebula, which is a streaming platform outside of YouTube for a conglomerate of these YouTube creators. So I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. It's so dialed in. So dialed in and can explain what he does so well. But dude, honestly, everyone, I'll just watch YouTube for fun, even though the brain cannot turn off. And I'll be like, huh, wait, rewind that. What's up with that pacing? I've never seen that editing technique before, you know, or, oh, I've never literally ever thought of doing a thumbnail in that particular way. Or I'll try to find, there's this guy, Jeff Lewis on Twitter. He's not a VC. He calls himself, but he runs, I think it's called Bedrock. But anyways, he has some really interesting philosophies and his whole investing philosophy, I think it's, it's called narrative violations. And so I'm like, okay, well, what's a content narrative violation? What shouldn't work, but is working? Why? And a lot of that honestly comes from just randomly browsing around the internet. I found, for example, I found on TikTok, I don't really consume TikTok a whole lot anymore, but I found a genre of content. I was like, well, I've never thought about this. It's fiction in a carousel slideshow with music, with fake text conversations as a story. So basically it's this woman who's marketing her fiction books, like her Amazon books, but the way she was marketing it is crafting a fake iPhone conversation of a coworker and her boss flirting. And that's the premise of the eventual book. And for a while, I was like, this is actually just like oddly entertaining. It's like very dramatic, you know, 
Because what she would do is she'd have the conversation and then she'd append captions of what she was thinking as the character. And it was so real and in situ. I was like, dude, this is real. And then I, I realized it wasn't. And I was like, holy shit, I never thought that that would be a format. And so I was like, well, can I apply that? Turns out I haven't, but it's interesting. There's inspiration everywhere. Back of your mind still. Yeah, it's still there. Damn, that was really clever, you know? I'm glad that I asked that question to close it out. We started with the obsession over gardening and that craft, but we might have been overlooking the YouTube side, the content creation, the video creation too. This has been awesome. Spending more time with you, talking to you has been incredible. Thanks for joining us on Making Media. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you so much. All right, Dom. First recording on location where you got a taste of what it's like to be in this miraculous shed. We'll get to that a little bit later. Touching on the conversation we had with Kevin, some of the previous conversations we had with Kevin, I think I may have given this away, but I'm a huge admirer of what he's building and the potential for what it can become. I think it's actually very differentiated from what others are doing. But as you digest everything that Kevin just shared with us there, what are your thoughts? He just seems to get it. That's the simplest way I encapsulate whenever I speak to him. I've spoken to him a few times now, and every question you ask him just seems to make sense, the answer that comes back to you. And he'll, he kind of mentioned, he'll very humbly tell you that there's no magic formula to the way in which he conducts his operation there, but he seems to be hitting all the right notes, as far as I can tell, and for a very long time as well. And I think that question towards the beginning about him playing poker against French people really speaks to how he thinks about life and his business more broadly. He understands you need to find the right games to play. And he just has really found a something that he really enjoys in gardening. He didn't grow up with a green thumb, but he found it as a hobby and really enjoyed it. And then has understood how the landscape can evolve ahead of him as a content creator. And then now as a seller of product as well. His whole story and epic gardening itself makes so much sense in hindsight when you walk through it. I just have to imagine at the time, and you know, we're in a somewhat similar position in a very different industry. It feels so murky looking forwards. And I can only imagine that that was the same feeling that he had for a number of years. It all just makes sense. He just gets it. I'm rambling now. So it's probably time for your reflections. Do you think that people, when you say like he gets it, the tone in your voice is that many don't get it. <laughs> Where do you think the delta is between those that get it and those that don't get it? Well, I think it's more just there are lots of content creators and he identifies as a content creator, particularly as a YouTuber. That's the thing he always comes back to. And he's built a really big and thriving YouTube channel. But he also has this business that's 15 times larger than the thing he identifies as. And that's because he's made these like steps to build it into a product business which is now dwarfs the media enterprise. That doesn't mean that's proportionally how you'd weight them in terms of importance, but it's just, that's the thing. I think we speak to a lot of creators, but they are still their YouTube channel or their podcast or whatever else it might be. They haven't graduated into a fully fledged business that is much, much bigger than the media arm. I did love that towards the end of the conversation when he started talking about the rabbit hole of YouTube channels and just finding people that are completely random, getting lost in the algo and being so obsessed with it. That brought me back to the beginning of the conversation when I was asking about his passion with the craft of gardening. Equally a valuable question to ask would have been his passion with the craft of making YouTube videos. I just thought that was something that really stood out. It did not have to come out in this inorganic way where I asked the question, it just came out very organically when he started telling that story. 
I think that might be his true passion if he like really dug into it. I think he obviously talks about gardening on YouTube, but I really think that seems to be the thing he's obsessed with when he didn't have specific people because he's like, I just, I'm looking almost at the machine at the system rather than necessarily the words and the pictures, which is kind of fascinating. Yeah. And I know throughout that conversation, I referenced the Jorgensen interviews that he's done. We saw one on site at Capital Camp and he's done a few appearances with him on the podcast. I think those are pretty great conversations. And I think it just introduced me to how his business mind thinks to bring everyone behind the scenes. I went up to Kevin at Capital Camp in a coffee line and just started talking to him because I really wanted to introduce myself and have a conversation. And it was 20 minutes later. And I felt like I had a really distinct download of everything that he was up to. Incredibly social guy. To your point, he got it. It wasn't this dance around things. And it was just really, really impressive. So every conversation we've had in terms of how he approaches business comes across that way. Yeah. And note to myself during that conversation that the people that know, they don't call it content to commerce. He was calling it product and media throughout the conversation. I felt like an outsider asking him questions about content and commerce. So I'm going to change my lexicon. I'm going to start using media and product because that feels like the insider. It's not as catchy. The alliteration really goes a pretty decently long way. I also thought it was pretty interesting how, and this has happened a few times recently, where people talk about products they like versus products that they would never have as a sponsor. And it's always a pretty good indicator when someone's, well, we can never do that. And I just had that conversation on Friday with Senra where we won't name who, but he was basically like, well, no, they can never be a sponsor because I would absolutely never use that. And there's just no way. And I was like, oh, that makes it easy. And thank you for also just reaffirming the confidence. And it's amazing. And it really speaks to me like how he treats the media business with real kid gloves around selling products. Obviously, that's the thing making money. He's like, we basically never asked for anything because that trust you built with your audience is so fragile. It can be very long term, but it's incredibly fragile. And the moment someone thinks that you're just selling them stuff, you'll lose that person for a very long time, if not forever. And so I always find that really interesting when it's just always the same with media business. Basically, you have to be very, very careful what you're doing, even if you know there is a flywheel, if you like, here where one bit helps you sell the other bit, but you don't ever really want to make it explicit. It's just a way of bringing people in, lowering your cost of acquisition or even turning it negative as he told us before. And it's very impressive. And it made me wonder as well, if he were to leave the business, which I hope he doesn't, but if he were, then if someone coming in, A, would look at the business and say, from a numbers point of view, if you're the CEO of that business, one bit is far, far more important than the other bit. But that would kill the golden goose of the business if you look at it in those ways. He is incredibly important to this business. And just that mentality, he is the media guy. And so keeping that balance between those two pieces is really important. I wonder if anyone else would be able to manage it in the way that he can. Yeah, you would hope that there's some level of understanding in terms of how that marketing budget does not exist to the extent that it would if you were there. And there's also the fact that media is probably a significantly higher margin business. So that might actually show up. But I think it's a really interesting theme over the next five to 10 years is those with audiences... Yes, there's the course, there's the events, and those things can be, to a certain extent, incredibly valuable businesses. But will you see more funds pairing with creators and finding unique ways to acquire businesses and bring the creator into the operations? I think Kevin's pretty unique in terms of his business savvy, in terms of being able to actually operate it. And I think it could be done really poorly. There's In the venture world, I think there's some of it where it doesn't just come across nearly as authentic. 
but you can lay out that narrative however you like in terms of it makes sense economically. And I think it's just really, really interesting to watch out for. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. The bit that you mentioned this in response to one of his answers where it's so funny when you play against people who are terrible at something and you just can't predict them. It really reminded me of playing sports as a kid, in particular hockey, whenever you come up against teams or players who didn't have a clue. All of your normal tricks just didn't work against them. If you try and feint or fake to go one way, they like just don't get it and they're still standing there. <laughs> it's always just almost harder than playing against someone who is mediocre, which just made me laugh. That's 100% accurate. It reminds me of a basketball thing, and we used to have that conversation, that exact conversation. The crossover does not work when the person doesn't bite at the initial thing, which is hilarious. Yeah, he had a lot of gems, and I think just his wide-ranging interests and his backstory, I think, is really interesting. And he's one of those people where I had expectations going in, and he's exceeded them in a variety of different ways, which is great. Yeah, every time you speak to him, you come away a little bit more impressed. Even like the hat thing, just small details that really add up to me with regards to Kevin and his business. Like Ultimately, in those transactions, although most of the time you're talking numbers, the psychological impact is huge. And if you can show someone that you care, he had a few things going for him, I guess. One being that he had his own business and he cared about it. And it was not just some big soulless corporation that they would be selling into, but also that he was wearing this hat that was promoting their stuff when he didn't need to. Imagine if he hadn't, the deal hadn't gone through and he's now just been promoting this thing for six months, which he's had no benefit of. In fact, it's just been a loss of his time and probably some lawyer's fees as well in amongst all of that stuff. And you promoted your competitor's product. That would have been pretty gut-wrenching, but he went out on a limb and did it. It was also actually, that brings up the other point that I found really interesting of, I was surprised when he said that he felt like he was just a hedging entrepreneur because it really does not look like that from the outside. No, yeah, completely agree. I think it's like calculated risk. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to make that clear to him. It is not defensive or hedging in any way. He is taking on substantial risk and making every one of these decisions, but it's being proactive instead of reactive. And I think that's the highest compliment you could pay to someone. I would like to see risk on Kevin because watch out Amazon. Yeah. I also think if you stand back and think about a creator acquiring the business. Now, he was also with the churning group, which brings a certain cachet with that acquisition. But the headlines are creator is buying this operational business. I'm just going to tell you, no matter what you convince yourself when you're in the creation world, nobody thinks that you can come in and do their job, especially if it's in that type of role. So I think it's very clear that he has the EQ around this stuff, which isn't always the case when it comes to these things. Definitely. Barstool said exactly the same thing about their investment from TCG, where it surprised both of them. And I think I've heard other people say it as well. The brand value of having an investor like that behind you as a creator is much more than you would ever assume ahead of time. You think you are your brand, your media business is the brand. Why would I need some investors to help with that? It turns out there are certain situations where it does help a lot. Indeed. Just switching gears a little bit, how was recording in the shed? Any last comments that I can change up in terms of atmosphere? No. So just in case people don't know, I was recording in Matt's shed. And if you've seen some of the images or the stills or the small videos on Twitter of Matt's shed, it's a delightful little wooden cabin. And the best compliment I can give it is it smells like it looks got a lovely, what wood is it? Because it smells like a sort of cedar. It smells like a sauna, which is a lovely, comforting smell. It was pretty hot out. So I was getting a little bit toasty towards the end, but it was a very nice experience. HVAC system, buddy. Should have just asked. It was on. <laughs> Could have been powered up a little bit higher. I didn't want to press any buttons in case I turned it off. Ah, fair. Smart move. That could have been tough. I will say, if I'm allowed to be constructive for a second, 
I think your table is too high. It is. Yeah. I'm glad I was in there for an hour. My neck and my shoulders can have lasted much longer. <laughs> we'll get you a booster seat next time. You'll feel, uh... <laughs> well, the thing is, I could have lifted the seats up, but then my legs wouldn't have been touching the floor. It would have been bad ergonomics all around. So I had to cut my losses and just have my arms up high. Fair enough. I'll send it back to the manufacturer. Let them know. Give them that guidance. If you wouldn't mind. Awesome. All right. Well, yeah, one of the more interesting businesses in terms of what he's built that I've seen in a while, I think about the content to commerce thing a lot or media to product, but doesn't roll off the tongue as easily. Kevin, I think is one of the most interesting ones. And I think I mentioned to him, I've been sharing that story with quite a few people since we met and everybody's very fascinated by it. So I feel like I have at least that validation. And I think he is something that I think you will see people try to mimic in the future. I think he's uniquely capable of doing this. So it's going to be interesting to see how the other ventures go. But I like what he's up to. And I'm excited to watch. Me too. He's also been incredibly generous this time since we met him first, which is not to be underestimated. Yeah, you could tell he is legitimately interested in learning from other people and what other people are doing as well. And he's willing to give. It's like a give to get value. And he lives that. And yeah, I love it. So Big time. Very good. Well, pleasure as always. And we will see you next week on Making Media. Good gardening in the meantime. <laughs>